hello and welcome to the Fight Back podcast. My name's Georgia. I'm an exercise scientist, kickboxer, and the founder of the Fight Back Project. I started the Fight Back podcast to inspire and empower women to start martial arts. So if this is your first time at the podcast, let me run you through it. If you don't do martial arts, I'm really hoping that when you listen to this, you'll feel confident to take the leap to give it a crack. If you do martial arts, I'm hoping that this podcast will give you a new perspective and encourage you to look at the other people, particularly the women in your life who might need martial arts for their mental health, and that you might reach out to them and get them involved in doing some training. Obviously, we're in the middle of COVID-19 right now, but there are so many amazing online resources that can be much less scary for people for starting out than coming into a gym. So there's always a way to get started. There's always a way that we can be connecting with our communities and growing as people. And I think that combat sports are just the ideal way to do that, at least for a good chunk of us. In this podcast, you're going to see a variety of formats. Sometimes it'll just be me talking about research that I think is interesting pertaining to martial arts and mental health. Sometimes I'll be lucky enough to have on amazing women who have overcome mental health battles through martial arts. And sometimes, like today, I'll be interviewing experts to talk about the link between mental health, exercise, and specifically martial arts as a type of exercise. So without further ado, today's guest is Sean Desjardins. He runs Mindful Martial Arts, which is a trauma-informed MMA club in Toronto, Canada. And Sean and I sit down to talk about why there's a need to have trauma-informed MMA. We talk about his childhood trauma and how that impacted him in being obsessed with learning MMA. And then we talk about what needs to be different in a trauma-informed approach to teaching MMA and what people can be practically looking for if they aren't in Toronto or they don't have access to some other mindful form of martial arts, if they're just going to a regular club. Sean speaks really, really well. He's such a knowledgeable guy. He's really relatable and I just found this podcast so great to record. I've listened it back a couple of times because I think the way that he explains a lot of the the science behind what happens to our bodies when we experience trauma. So think about like the science of PTSD and then how that impacts you while you're trying to train in MMA. He specifically talks a lot about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is I think great for listeners that aren't as involved with striking who want to hear about some other types of martial arts too. So give it a listen. You will not be disappointed. I, like I said, I loved recording this podcast. There's so much great information in it and I hope you enjoy yourself. All right, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, virtually sitting down to chat with me. Why don't we start out with you introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Georgia. Um, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, my name is Sean Desjardins. I'm born in Canada. Uh, currently live in Toronto, Ontario. 
And I'm a martial arts practitioner of about uh, 10 years in a very committed way. And I run Mindful Martial Arts here in Toronto, uh, which is a martial arts uh, studio and philosophy that has some elements of mindfulness and trauma-informed aspects to it. That would be be the short intro, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to dig into both of those elements. First, tell everybody what that means. You're a martial artist, so which martial arts, to what capacity? Tell us about that. So um, when I was a kid, I did a little bit of karate when I was very young, but then got really into competitive uh, ice hockey, as a lot of Canadians do. And... um, as I moved into university, I was weightlifting a lot, but I was always obsessed with watching uh, some of the fights, especially in Pride in Japan, the MMA fights. And a lot of the, the kind of narratives and the storylines of, of people overcoming tremendous obstacles and, uh, and the skill and the resolve required to be successful in MMA just like really captivated me. And I had such a desire to do it, but at the time I was living a life that maybe wasn't so authentic to who I was. Um, I was a mechanical engineer. I was in school. I was kind of not fully committed to that path. And after a sequence of life events happened that kind of disintegrated my my circumstances, um, I jumped into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the beginning of 2011 and have been involved heavily in martial arts since that day, like February, I think, 1st, 2011. Um, So since that time, I've trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu pretty consistently uh, for, I guess it's just over nine years, and uh, spent time in boxing, Muay Thai, Judo, freestyle wrestling, yeah, mixed martial arts, a little bit of Taekwondo, uh, basically anything that I felt like was effective martial arts, I would, I would spend time trying to learn and trying to integrate into, uh, into myself. And yeah, that's been, that's been my journey. Um, mainly focused on MMA the last couple of years, but jujitsu was kind of my starting point and my foundation. And with jiu-jitsu, did you train a lot in the gi in the beginning then? I did. So most of the training was in the gi when I started. And I really loved it. I fell in love with it. I loved the, I don't know, the ritual of it, the tradition of it. And uh, over time, I did develop some pretty bad tendonitis in my my arms. (laughs) And with that... I kind of had to let go of the gi for a bit and transition more into no gi and eventually got interested in mixed martial arts and so started to invest more time in boxing and kickboxing and, and other arts that uh, I felt like would help me along the way. And we'll just, and, yeah, we'll just get you to explain a little bit more about Brazilian jiu-jitsu because we haven't spoken about it in detail on this podcast yet. Certainly my background is focused around striking. So can you just explain what is the gi, what's no gi, what's the kind of grading system and a bit of an overview of what is Brazilian jiu-jitsu? For sure, yeah. I love this. I love the narrative of it. So um, uh, in Japan, judo developed several hundred years ago uh, or a few hundred years ago, 
And in the process, uh, one judoka, I think he was part of the first wave of judokas. There was the founder and then he had some students. I believe he came to North America and was kind of roaming around and fighting uh, boxers and wrestlers of different uh, parts of North America. And eventually he found his way to South America and Brazil. And he was teaching judo to a few different families, one of them being the Gracie family. And there was one son, uh, Elio Gracie, who did not have the physical capacity to execute the judo techniques effectively. Um, as much as judo is like the gentle way, um, competitively, it does require some strength and some power uh, often to execute the techniques uh, in a practical sense. And so this this person, Elio Gracie, not being able to do a pull-up or a push-up and not having a kind of physicality to him that allowed him to compete with his brothers, he started to modify the techniques um, so that a smaller, less uh, physically dominant or aggressive opponent could survive and defend themselves against a larger, more athletic or aggressive opponent. And this is kind of the origins of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and why it has the style that it has, which is very much focused, in my opinion, in its essence, on self-defense and survival. Um, and so since that, well, that system has been developing ever since, you know, it was created and continues to develop every day. But uh, it really became popular in the early 90s when the UFC was, it was actually one of the Gracie brothers that began the UFC and they wanted to display the efficacy of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in a as close as possible to a full street fight kind of scenario. And that was the early days of the UFC and MMA where, you know, there was almost no rules. People were coming in and, you know, 50, 70, 80 pounds heavier than each other and in all different disciplines. And the first UFC, uh, I believe it was Hoist Gracie who beat a bunch of people who were significantly larger than him using the principles of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which was astounding to watch, you know, to see somebody who was so much smaller and, and didn't look like you would imagine a fighter would look, uh, taking these people down 80 pounds heavier than him and choking them out. Um, so, yeah, I guess with that system, there's a belt system that goes white, blue, purple, brown, black. And from black, you can have a coral belt after several, several, several years of teaching and I think there's a, a red belt that is uh, specifically for the founders of jiu-jitsu that, uh, I guess, would be the, the originators who have that kind of belt. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, in my journey, uh, I started training and I had some, some natural kind of athleticism and a natural... I just felt like it fit, it fit my personality and it fit um, my style of movement. And... I progressed relatively quickly and got a blue belt within eight months and uh, won my first competition as a white belt. And uh, after about a year or so of training, I started to travel and, and find myself in different countries all around the world, uh, which uh, put, I guess, a halt in, in my progression in the traditional sense. But I was able to create different experiences where I was learning, teaching and training in, in other gyms around the world as well. 
in that time. And have you come back to training in the gi to keep grading now, or have you switched to no gi to focus more on MMA? To be honest with you, I rarely train in the gi uh, at this point. Uh, because my focus is MMA, I think that um, pure gi jiu-jitsu, while it does definitely have its benefits, it's a very thinking kind of person's art. It's very technical, uh, and that can be helpful for MMA. Uh, I also feel that sometimes uh, there's places when in gi jiu-jitsu where you are safe because of the rule set, where in MMA you are not safe. Mm-hmm. And so getting too used to that scenario can sometimes create bad habits where um, you'll find yourself in a defensive position and in pure jiu-jitsu with a gi, you're absolutely safe. But if you take that away and strikes are allowed, uh, you are absolutely not safe. So. Um, I often do train nogi at this point in my my journey. Absolutely. And did you keep grading? Did you get your purple belt? I never did. So I've literally had my blue belt for over eight years. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I competed in blue belt. And then after that, I mainly was doing nogi and focused on learning more boxing and Muay Thai. And, and I always felt like my foundational jujitsu was solid enough that I could leave it aside a little bit and really focus on becoming a more well-rounded martial artist and especially mixed martial artist. Um, so yeah, it's definitely in my plans to, to go back and to continue that progression. It's just been more so my goals kind of have me focused on wrestling and, and jujitsu and no gi and, uh, and kickboxing and, and boxing yeah, that's kind of where I put my energy for the last four or five years. Yeah, hey, and if somebody signs up to fight you in MMA and they're like, oh, he's just a blue belt. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> Sometimes it's deceptive because I do have, I guess, more time on the mats than most blue belts. Definitely more, I think. Yeah, but at the same token, it's like I haven't had that kind of committed time where I'm in the gym every day training and building a game. I've... uh I've been more so like I built my foundation and then I use my foundation to kind of function and, uh, and build from that point. Yeah. Which I think is that transitionary point in MMA, right. That we're seeing now people aren't specialists. They're just, you know, good at MMA as a whole sport. And then therefore, you know, don't have necessarily as many weaknesses but also don't yeah. have like their, you know, real big go-to thing. They're just looking at how to win fights, which is fascinating of in itself, I think. Yeah, it's becoming a very interesting landscape. Um, like the kind of the days of the hyper specialist, there's not that many people left like that. Mm. Maybe like Stephen Thompson, the karate striker. Yeah. You know, people have their, their proclivities towards certain arts, but it's rare that you're going to find somebody who doesn't know a little bit of wrestling, a little bit of jiu-jitsu, a little bit of striking. For sure. And how does all of those martial arts and MMA fit in at Mindful Martial Arts? So the the premise that I've been running under for the last year and a half is kind of three-tier. So self-defense, mindfulness, and mixed martial arts. Um, Self-defense kind of... So there was something, and I don't know if it's going to be the exact words, but paraphrased that uh, Hicks and Gracie 
which is the son of Elio Gracie, one of the founders of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, said that really resonated with me. And it was something like, first you learn self-defense or how to defend yourself so that you can be in the world and be able to speak your truth. Mm. Um, for me as a, as a man in the world, uh, I often felt when I was younger, I was small, I was 135 pounds. I wasn't particularly physically menacing in any way that the threat of some kind of physical confrontation held me back from standing up for myself when I was younger. And what Brazilian jiu-jitsu did to me is it gave me this tremendous confidence that if something were to go down, I would be much, much better prepared than without that knowledge. Um, actually, when I was about 21, 22, I was, uh, I was downtown Toronto on New Year's Eve and I got into a scenario where three people tried to rob me and my friend. And at the time I was uh, quite beefy. I was like four, 35 pounds full of like heavier. I probably weigh 155 pounds at this point, but I was probably 185, 190 full of muscle, but I had wow. no idea what I was doing. And uh, this group, these group of dudes tried to rob us. And one guy like grabbed my friend and like held him up. And then another dude came and just started throwing punches at me. And I was able to like plant my foot and throw a punch back. And I actually broke my knuckle on his head the first punch. And, uh, <laughs> and then another guy busted out a bear mace, like bear spray. Oh, started, yeah, of course. It's Canada. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so he started spraying everybody down and it just turned into chaos. And I guess I realized that in spite of me being strong, I didn't really know what I was doing mm -hmm. uh, with self-defense and martial arts. And so, yeah, that's kind of what got me in, in a way on the path of training. And, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of recollect recollecting that now. Um, yeah. So self-defense is tier one. Yeah. So self-defense being this kind of like feeling more confident that if something were to degrade into a physical confrontation, mm -hmm. you would have more tools, more confidence, more experience to be able to defend yourself and to feel confident that you can speak up for yourself or speak out for somebody who was being bullied or somebody, you know, some injustice that's going on in the world. And that fear of physical confrontation won't override your ability to do so. And I really found that that was true in my life. Um, and so there is a focus on self-defense uh, in mindful martial arts that I think is really important and something that doesn't exist enough in other martial arts studios in the world and, and needs to be developed because even the self-defense techniques that exist um, to this day are quite old and, and maybe a little bit outdated. And so I really like the idea of that continuing to develop. Um, and so the other aspect, aspect would be mindfulness. So through the process of training, as I'm sure you've realized, like everyone learns so much about themselves. When you, when you kind of like work at your edges and you challenge yourself, parts of, at least I'll speak for myself, parts of my experience and my identity and, and my beliefs um, come into question as I'm training because I'm kind of coming up against perceived limitations or, or my identity or uh, different aspects of myself. And so including a mindful component into the training, I think really helps people 
understand themselves better and helps keep them safer because they're, they're encouraged to pay attention to their bodies and to the signals that they're being given and really develop a capacity of discernment. Discernment in one sense being how do I discern injury or injurious kind of force from discomfort? And how do I sit with discomfort or be with discomfort in a way where I can show myself that even though I'm uncomfortable, I'm actually safe. And I think that that's a life skill that transcends. I think anyone in martial arts feels that way. It transcends um, the martial arts realm into anything that's stressful um, in life. And so, yeah, the second component would be that mindful component. And the third is uh, I would consider in relationship to self-development, which is the kind of competitive mixed martial arts, which, um, yeah, for me, just like is the most kind of complete fighting system that I can find um, that's hand-to-hand combat. And... And I just find a lot of uh, value in, in learning it and understanding the different styles and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot there. I think I, I would be talking for a long time if I continued, but just as a gist, yeah, those kind of three components is what I've based mindful martial arts in. And what kind of classes do you have or how do you integrate those three things into the teaching that you have there? So um, I guess just as a rundown, like, uh, when people come into class, uh, they're always greeted. They're always, you know, engaged with humanity. How are you? How's your day going? Um, they're always given an opportunity to kind of express where they're at on that day and see if they have any needs that need to kind of be addressed before we can head into training. Um, there's different scenarios where if somebody's having a tough day, they might need to go hit the bag for a few minutes just to kind of like get some frustration out or um, they might need to kind of, you know, chat about something quickly. Um, and then after kind of running through what the plan is for the day, there's a, a kind of mindful warm up where as we do joint mobilization and dynamic stretching, there's a focus on following your breath and paying attention to your breath as you're moving your body. And I feel like that's a real foundation for training because in training, oftentimes when people, I'll use some, I guess, trauma terminology, become dysregulated mm-hmm. or, or when they are, um, I guess I'm not sure the, the knowledge base of the audience, but when somebody becomes overwhelmed, oftentimes there's a component of breath associated with it whether it's holding the breath or hypoventilating or or not breathing deeply and building this capacity to pay attention to your breath as you're moving in a more controlled way uh, sets the foundation for as you increase your intensity of training to maintain that practice and to be able to come back to this grounded sense of yourself and move through your emotions, move through your physical sensations of discomfort uh, during the training. Um, So yeah, after that, there's a a kind of more regular warm-up where you're doing certain movements and drills that are associated with the different arts. Like, you know, I'll do some double legs uh, from freestyle wrestling and some shrimps from jujitsu, which are just 
fundamental movements of the different arts. And from there, we'll head into self-defense. So there's always a focus on self-defense in the beginning of the class. Uh, we'll go over different scenarios, um, different ways of psychologically kind of framing self-defense. Like, are you able to acknowledge or recognize when there is a threat? And there's a, there's a three-tiered system around like, can you avoid that threat? Because number one, if you can just avoid that and it's not going to harm anyone else or yourself, that seems like a, the most reasonable first strategy. And uh, after that, if you cannot, there's de-escalation strategies. And finally, the execution of self-defense in the third stage. Um, always reducing the harm caused during that process. So always trying to come back to this understanding that this is another human being for whatever reasons they're in a place where they are acting out in a way that's harmful. But if we are competent and strong enough, we can neutralize that without needing to further harm them. Um, so always when we execute a self-defense technique, uh, you know, take somebody to the ground or whatever, there's always, we're always trying to create an opportunity where we can say to this person, like, I'm not against you. I'm on your side. You know, I'm not going to hurt you and, and give them an opportunity to come back to kind of their, their humanity and their, their more, their best self. If you want to, if you want to put it that way. Um, so after a period of practicing that, we'll go into the MMA techniques and that's where we'll learn more, you know, sport or orientations of jiu-jitsu, wrestling, and kickboxing. And um, after that, you know, and there, there's more to say on that, but for now as an overview, uh, the class ends with uh, 10 minutes of seated meditation to kind of integrate everything that was learned and give people space to kind of process. And then in the last while before COVID, we started just having like small discussions about, you know, what's coming up for people and, and what's going on for people at the end of class. And it's a really amazing space to develop camaraderie and develop um, a space where it's like safe to kind of be uh, vulnerable as well. Um, something about the mindful aspect with the training, I think is really conducive to people feeling like they can, they can open up. And uh, yeah, I think that's a really powerful kind of um, community building, friendship building tool. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I cannot wait until we can travel and we can come and check out yeah. with you guys. Um, I think the best way to talk about the class content itself as in the teaching of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or the teaching of wrestling is to zoom a bit further out and say, you know, why did you start mindful martial arts? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I myself experienced uh, some pretty severe childhood trauma when I was very young and uh, I really had no recollection of it until I was about 27 years old. I didn't really understand that I had experienced trauma. It was completely suppressed in my psyche. And I had started jujitsu around know, 23 years old, 22 years old. Um, and it always resonated with me, but I had some real challenges. Like for those of you who kind of understand the trauma lingo, 
I was constantly uh, dysregulated. Like I remember every time I would spar or, or roll, I would be on the verge of puking and hyperventilating and like have to go to the bathroom and just like, you know, I was, uh, I was in a mode of panic constantly. And, um, and I really felt, to be honest with you, like constantly triggered by training, but it gave me something on top of that, that gave me the strength to push through it. Uh, it gave me confidence and it gave me, um, yeah, a kind of a goal, a self-worth. It gave me, it gave me a sense of competence that helped me work through um, and accept just some of the, the hardships I was experiencing because the trauma I experienced when I was very young was very much activated by intense physical activity, close proximity and physical contact with other people. Um, yeah. So like, it was kind of a, it was kind of like a bit of a war zone internally for me as well. And I never really understood it. I just kind of accepted in some ways that, you know, I was having a hard time, but after I uncovered that I had experienced childhood trauma and I started learning about uh, some trauma theory and, and received more and more therapy and started to understand uh, more about my nervous system, more about attachment um, mechanisms, more about um, some of the, the animalistic self-defense mechanisms that exist in humans and, and other animals that are embedded kind of in our autonomic nervous system, I started to, to make sense of like, oh, this is why when this happens, I feel this way. And this is why, you know, after hard sparring, I, I would have days, like days where I would be completely in turmoil. Like I, if I would have like some hard kickboxing sparring, it would be like two days that I would not even know what was happening. I would just be lost in, in chaos. And, and so after going through this for so long and then learning about the trauma side, I started to understand that I needed sometimes to advocate for myself and ask for, to reduce intensity or um, to be able to have a little bit more choice in my training than a kind of traditional, like, I'm the coach, you fight him, you do this, you do that. Um, because almost always my, my trainers, my coaches, my instructors didn't really understand my experience. Maybe they hadn't experienced similar trauma or they just didn't, didn't know about it. So what I started doing was ad trying to advocate for myself. And I'm just going to be really honest about my experience here. Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah, so... In 2016, I moved to Montreal, Canada from Toronto to pursue training at a gym called TriStar, mm -hmm. uh, which is where George St. Pierre trains and a whole slew of champions and a high level mixed martial artists. It's like a mecca of MMA for Canada and for the world, to be honest with you. Um, they have a head coach there, uh, Faraz Zahabi, who's just a brilliant tactician and, and an amazing martial artist. And... Um, and through circumstances of uncovering trauma and, and facing some of those things and, and uh, some life instability that happened in that process, I ended up coming back to Toronto to kind of rebuild my life. And I was looking for MMA gyms because I had decided that that was my path by that point. And 
you know, at the different gyms that I was training at, I would try to advocate for what I needed, which was like, you know, maybe to a training partner, like, Hey, I had probably already lived so many really horrific kind of experiences through being, you know, flashbacks and triggers during the day. And I just was able to drag myself into the gym in the evening. And I just needed to, I needed something like I couldn't go, I didn't have any fight in me. And so I wanted to be there, but I couldn't go full force. And so I would ask training partners like, Hey, like, you know, I'm really not feeling it today. Could we just be technical or kind of flow? And, you know, there was times when people would say yes and then jump on my neck, you know, full force and and rip a submission, you know? And then I would be like, Oh, well, (laughs) clearly nothing I said landed for this person. And so I started to have to become more selective about who I would train with. And eventually I had some experiences where instruct, like I would talk to instructors about this and some of them were understanding, but some of them weren't. Um, and one, one guy in particular who was an instructor, I remember when I tried to advocate for this kind of scenario where like, I need to have some choice around my training intensity. Uh, he basically just called me a pussy. And I think he assumed that this was my way of being a coward and escaping the consequences of not, you know, facing like being beaten or something like that and not wanting to face that reality that somebody would be better than me or something of that nature. And so I don't know how proud of him of this, but this is just the reality of what happened. Um, After that experience, I think the next day or the day after I approached him when it was just jujitsu sparring and I, and I, and I told him like, you know, would you be willing to spar at full intensity today? And he laughed at me because he thought I was joking. He thought I was doing that every time. And um, yeah, so I ended up just kind of like being tactical, defensive, gassing him out for a few minutes and then like aggressively taking his back and putting on a choke and, and, and really, yeah, really putting the submission on. And before he tapped out, I let it go. And this was like in front of his girlfriend who was like, you know, watching and like the whole class and everything. And for me, it wasn't about like, oh, I can beat you. It was about, look, man, I can go to this place of intensity. I have this within me. I have this capacity. I have all of it. The point is that it's not healthy for me psychologically and emotionally right now. And I need to be able to have the choice to be able to go there when it feels right for me. And so in a way, I feel like he didn't respect my words, but when I showed him physically uh, through, I guess, domination, through, through winning, um, that I'm not bullshitting you. Like, I have this capacity. I have this strength within me. It's just not healthy for me to engage it right now. Then his perspective changed, and he started to treat me with more respect, and there was a kind of, you know, a shift. But for me, ultimately, I didn't want to have to do that to be respected. And, and nobody should. Because, like, I'm lucky in that I had a lot of training previously before I went to some of these gyms and I had capacity and I had um, this strength inside of me. But if a beginner were to go there uh, who didn't have that, you know, already inside of them, that technique and the experience, um, I don't think they would have ever gotten um, a genuine baseline level of respect that I think is necessary to 
build a healthy relationship in training. And so I left that gym eventually because I realized that like, you know, I don't want to have to dominate people for them to respect me. I just want people to respect me and I want to respect people. And so I kept on going to other gyms and I went to another gym in the city and, you know, things were okay for a bit. And then I came across some pro MMA fighters who, you know, this was my goal anyways, to, to fight professionally. And I found that there was a lot of stuff that kind of let is being let go under the guise of like, I don't know, like my feeling is sometimes when somebody's threatening to somebody else, like in that hierarchy of martial arts and, and competition and stuff, there's like a desire to try to prove dominance and to beat the person, even if it's like training. So like, for example, you know, I took months off after like leaving one gym, went back to another gym and was just saying, Oh, it's my first day back. Just want to go easy, you know? And some pro fighter just put it on me like full intensity. And I spent maybe five minutes just being defensive and, and you know, just surviving because I knew that if I gave it back, I would be in a full out gym war on my first day back training. And I'm like, this is not what I want. And this, this, this isn't the kind of environment or the people that I want to build with because I want to build with people who are, oh, what's the word? Self-secure enough and understand that martial arts is a long journey. And to be so short-sighted that you feel like you got to beat everyone every time is a mistake. And it doesn't create an environment that's conducive to everyone growing together. And after a few of those kinds of experiences, I started to feel really upset because I, I, I knew what I wanted because I, I, had, I had experienced something similar to it when I was training in 2014 and 15 at a gym here in Toronto. But that coach who I had uh, stopped being interested in competition. And so when I went to his gym in 2016, maybe 17, when I came back to Toronto, um, he expressed to me that like he had zero interest in, in being part of anything competitive. You know, his, his goals changed um, because originally he was, I think, the first Brazilian, Canadian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, first or second. And he just produced this wave of, you know, first wave of uh, black belts in Ontario and in Toronto and surrounding area and like high level MMA fighters like um, Antonio Carvalho was under the coach whose, whose name was Shaw Franco or whose name is Shaw Franco. And he was in pride and he beat like legends like Ruman Asato and ended up going to the UFC and, and it's considered in some ways the godfather of Canadian mixed martial arts. But um, I couldn't find the environment that I was looking for because he was not interested in competition anymore. So I was left with like, I either accept that I'm going to be in an environment that doesn't suit me at all, or I'm going to create it. And so that's what I did is um, everything I learned from trauma theory, everything I learned from communication practices, everything I learned from martial arts, that teacher and all my other teachers, I started to piece together into creating a martial arts system that I felt like was holistic, sustainable, and ultimately the most effective. 
like, I know we've had discussions about this already about like what's actually effective when it comes to training methodology and this like go to your absolute red line every time. It just actually doesn't work well. So the trauma informed perspective, which I'm sure we can talk about more um, really does lend itself to a more effective training system or environment in general. And and yeah, and so I just slowly started, I, it literally started with myself and two friends I met in a park. Um, one guy was, a, he's, he's a good friend of mine. I, I trained with him to this day. He's a Russian, uh, he's an Armenian guy who grew up in Russia and he was wrestling when he was a teenager. And he just has this kind of power, resilience and grit and technicality to his wrestling that's really impressive. Like he doesn't even train anymore and he's just so full of like um, intensity and, and, and yeah, he's impressive. And another friend who's actually a Kundalini yoga teacher who had like a couple fights when he was younger and he was kind of on a different life path at the time. And so we just started training in this park and we started like, you know, started building this system. And then eventually I found a gym to rent and, and started to bring more people in little by little, starting with kind of friends and acquaintances and eventually, you know, building a website and inviting more of the public in, into that process. I, I want to dig into what trauma-informed is, but I, mm. I think I just have to circle back quickly because I think uh, TriStar Gym, uh, yeah. I know it's like calling out a name, but that they just have such a reputation for being... Faraz Zahabi, who talks a lot about play and light sparring and touch sparring, you know, and he talks about um, the way the ties do kickboxing and they never go hard and how you yeah. should flow roll and, and that's where, you know, you do your best work and, and things like that. And mm. so it doesn't extend to the whole gym? Um, so... My experience with that is that TriStar is this unique place where you can encounter an unbelievable amount of high-level professionals in a very small area, but there's a gap between kind of like the everyman and the professional. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you were to go to a class at TriStar, um, it would be similar to a class that you would go to anywhere else in the world at, at a martial arts gym. Uh, every once in a while, you know, you, you get, you know, a super high level person who's teaching that class, which is really amazing. Um, but yeah, like I, I would say that it's a very big gym. And even though this is his philosophy, you can't really control people. If people want to, you know, go to war every time they, they train, then, then they will. Um, and so in a gym that's so big, what I learned after visiting TriStar several times is that you have to find the people that are helpful for you. And you're not always going to, you know, not every person is going to be that. Some people may have some ego issues and they're there to dominate and, you know, like they'll learn in their own time. That's kind of, in my opinion, like martial arts does that to you anyways. You know, like if you're trying to be, if you're, if you're bringing some bullying tendencies into martial arts, eventually you're going to come across somebody who is more skilled than you, stronger than you, more experienced than you, and, and that will be reflected back to you. 
But um, my experience was that I had to kind of be discerning and find some people that were in the same kind of a realm of skills and abilities and same size and, and had like, a, yeah, that were beneficial to me in that respect. And not everyone, you know, not everyone is because in some sense, it, it, it isn't, you know, completely a comprehensive system um, of training and it's a very big gym and I think it would just be really hard to enforce that. Um, so yeah, but like I, I rolled with Faraz. I, I wrestled with Faraz. It was great. He's amazing. He's like very, he's very smooth. He's very technical. Um, it doesn't feel like he's using kind of violent force at all. And, and yeah, I mean, in, in some sense too, like the medicine, <laughs> I was just gonna I'm going to try to make a metaphor. I know it's going to work, but like, (laughs) so, you know, the same thing for a different person could be poison or medicine. So, um, for me, uh, right now where I'm at in my level of, uh, kind of like healing and integration and growth, I'm able to be in the, in the vicinity of more intensity than three years ago, three years ago, if you put me into like harder sparring, it would, absolutely messed me up um and so in some ways it's like being able to know your students and being able to know your training partners uh well enough uh, in developing those relationships really helps discern you know what's helpful and what's harmful um and in big gyms where people are coming in and out all the time and like you know like tristar is like a like people dream of, of training there and they come from all over the world. It's, I think it would just be harder to enforce that kind of um, mentality. Although I don't think it's impossible. I just think it would, it would take a change in like, well, at least the way that I do it with mindful martial arts is I kind of lay out the value system that, um, yeah. So like, I'll just kind of say it. So basically like, uh, the first rule is like respect yourself and respect your training partners. And that sounds so obvious and common sense, but the addendum to that is that if you don't know what that means, have a conversation about it. So, you know, if for you on one day you want to, you know, train hard and you want to go intense, uh, but your partner doesn't, um, I really encourage people to say like to speak their needs and their limits. So it's like, you know, I might, I might come in one day under my own system and I'm like, I want to go hard. I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling good. I want to, you know, like push the intensity. Does anyone here want to do that with me? And somebody else might say like, I'm in that headspace. I feel like that would be good for me. Let's do it. Boom. Slap hands. Let's go. But if I'm feeling that way and somebody else is in the opposite kind of phase where they're like, you know, I'm gassed out. I just am going through a lot in life and I just don't have, you know, to use like, I guess a mental health term, that many spoons. I don't have that much energy for that. They should also have the right to say like, I'm not down for that. I'm not in that place. And when it comes to competitive martial artists, there's a different kind of feel to it because in some ways, you know, like the average person who's learning martial arts to, to, to empower themselves, nobody has to fight. Like you're coming to this martial arts gym because you want to learn. But 
there's never me being like, you have to do this. You have to, no, you don't like, you know, you have to do what's best for you. So yeah, I just really feel like setting the context where it's like, you know, respect yourself, make sure you honor yourself, try to honor your partner. And if it's unclear what that means, talk about it. And you, and you can, I'm sure we can find a scenario which is mutually beneficial. And if we can't, let's switch partners. Let's find things that, that fit better, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I make sure to outline that value system. And then I guess, you know, I've been playing with this, but the other two that are maybe a little bit simpler, like do your best, like try your best. I think it's really important to, uh, to put yourself into things fully. And I encourage people to try their best. And the last is to enjoy it. Um, to enjoy the process. Cause, uh, I don't know, I guess as somebody who is, um, pretty like committed and desiring to be in the competitive realm. There's a lot of stress as I'm sure, you know, around like making sure you're like high level competent in a lot of areas. And so making sure you enjoy the practice, I think ensures the sustainability of training and uh, your enjoyment of it, of the arts. Yeah, I can very easily see and the, like the opposite of that, where if you don't have a system like that in place and people, you know, not because they're bad people or anything like that, but they fall into a mindset of like I'm here to prove how good I am and it's all mm. ego and that just builds when it's just a couple of people that have that, right? It, it's kind of infectious, toxically infectious sometimes. And, yes. And therefore even if they're in that space and they don't feel like they can say, I'm having a bad day today. I want to go easy. They're embarrassed to say that because they feel like they have to maintain this persona of like, I'm a tough fighter. Um, And then somebody else is having a great day. And so they go hard. Then the response has to be to step up. And when you up your intensity and you're in a bad mental space, you become overly emotional and wrapped up in emotion instead of doing sport, which martial arts is sport. So it doesn't need to have an attachment to the outcome, especially in mm. sparring, right? We try and say, or I try and say, you, you don't win at sparring. There's no, there's no winner or loser at the end. There's no judge. So you don't have to win. But if yeah. you don't have a system in place where people can say, I'm having a bad day, then they might just assume, you know, they might make an assumption. I have to prove that I'm, you know, X, Y, Z capable and show that. And if you just make it, a safe place to to say like no you don't have to prove anything and you're welcome to say what level you need i think that yeah i can i can imagine what it's like yeah that's that's very well put that's very well put and, and i think that that mentality that you're outlining is like um has been pretty rampant in the martial arts for a while especially in, in things like mixed martial arts and some of the harder martial arts um whatever you want to call it that like macho or kind of like, you know, there's no room to be vulnerable. There's no room to, to be afraid. There's no room to be um, sad. There's no room to have these kinds of things because we're always just trying to harden ourselves and, and strengthen ourselves. And, and there's value in that, but there's also value in, in the other side as well. In the softer side mm-hmm. or, yeah, definitely. So on that, can you explain in, in your system, what does trauma-informed mean? And also how does that relate to the window of tolerance? For sure. 
So I guess to, to start off, like I would say that um, I would consider my practice as something that's ever tending towards being trauma-informed. I don't know if I, if I, if I fit the definition, but I, that's a way for me to say like I'm always learning about how to, to make things better. Um, and so I guess the things that I do use in that vein, um, I do get offer some psychoeducation about, uh, the window of tolerance, which do, do you mind if I, if I start with that? Go for it. Okay. So the most simple definition I ever heard for the, for window of tolerance is, um, a range of experiences in which a human being or a being can think and feel simultaneously. And um, with that, with the range where one can think and feel simultaneously, one is actually processing information and, and, and in the process of, of learning, processing and integrating that information. Whereas if somebody's experience is so intense on either end of that spectrum. So there's a, there's a high end of the spectrum, which would be hyper arousal, maybe anger and rage and fear. And there's a low end of the spectrum, which is hypo arousal, which might be more like depressive symptoms and shame and kind of uh, low energy states. If those experiences, sensations and emotions are so intense that one isn't able to access their frontal cortex and think about them, then they're not necessarily processing the information. They are reacting from a kind of more primal, auton- autonomic, embedded system, a system of fight, flight, freeze, submit, um, which are different kind of survival mechanisms that exist that have been embedded in, in animals for, I don't know, since, <laughs> since uh, I don't know, potentially animals have nervous systems. Um, and so understanding that everybody has these natural self-defense mechanisms, which, you know, they serve a function, they served a function running away from a threat. You know, if a tiger comes at you or a wildebeest or whatever the case may be, and you have to either fight it or run away, it served a, it served a function. And, uh, you know, the, the freeze function around you cannot fight you cannot escape, you, you play dead, you freeze. Um, or the submit function where kind of all the adrenaline and cortisol and whatever chemicals are running through the body uh, discharge and, and one is kind of in this, again, like kind of play dead state so that hopefully the predator will at some point think, okay, I've got this prey, I'm going to put it down for a second and boom, you're out of there. So we have all these mechanisms embedded inside of us as human beings. And when they're triggered uh, and they're triggered to a degree where we're not able to simultaneously use our frontal cortex to think about them, we are just automatically responding and we're not actually taking in information, not processing. So I do some, uh, I guess, uh, informative stuff around, teaching people about their nervous systems and about these primal self-defense mechanisms, and then getting them to understand that what we're trying to do is allow those systems to engage because they have a natural place. They're, they're, you know, 
there's a, a reasonable way in which if somebody is physically um, attacking you, that this kind of fight energy, this, uh, this aggression that can come through uh, is actually very functional and very useful. But it's functional and useful with uh, a kind of discerning mind guiding it. So if somebody, you know, pokes me in the chest and I clock him with an overhand right, it might not be appropriate, <laughs> even though my body might be saying that that's what I need to do, you know? Um, so what, what I attempt to do for people is to get them to understand and recognize when they are within their window of tolerance and they're able to think and feel simultaneously. And when they are in these different self-defense uh, kind of primal mechanisms of fight, flight, freeze, submit, and to be able to acknowledge and bring awareness to what, where, what state they're in and start to kind of bring their thinking mind into the picture to start to think through scenarios that are activating these primal self-defense mechanisms so that they can respond to challenges efficiently, effectively, and intelligently. And some of the ways that I do that, one of the, one of the main ways is through breath awareness. So in the beginning of that practice, where we're moving slowly and mobilizing and focusing on our breath, we're building this capacity to return our attention to our breath, which becomes extremely helpful when somebody is putting all their weight on your chest and, you know, uh, putting their shoulder into your neck and turning your head and your body is screaming out like, oh my God, like, am I going to die? And over time, we're able to realize that, you know, to discern, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I'm safe. And now we can start to come to our breath, slow our breathing down and start to think through technique. Okay, what's an escape I know from here? Oh, turn my hips in, frame off the, you know, frame off the arm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... I guess what I've found is that when people learn from a state of fear or anger or, you know, outside of their ability to think about their experiences, they tend to pattern things into their body that are unhelpful. They tend to use these primal self-defense mechanisms unconsciously. And as much as they serve a function, they're not nuanced. They're not nuanced in a way that a martial art is. And so it's the integration of these primal self-defense mechanisms with the technique and the wisdom of the martial arts that creates the functional realized martial artist, in my opinion. Yeah. You explained that so well. That's, that's oh. great. I'm going to listen to that back for sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, on this podcast, we're especially interested in empowering and inspiring women to get yes. into a predominantly male dominated martial arts or sport being martial arts. Um, you have a women's only self-defense class. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? What's it like? Yes. Yeah, so in the beginning I started, everything was co-ed and um, the more I talked to women about what I was doing, the more I got the feedback that, uh, it would be helpful to have a women's only class. Um, whether or not, well, I'll, I'll just speak from my experience. My experience is that 
Some women didn't mind at all. And they were completely comfortable. And like, I don't care. Roll with men. It'd be fun. You know, they love it. And other women had um, maybe some traumas that didn't allow them to ever be inside their window of tolerance while training with a man. Um, and so I thought it would be helpful to create a context in which women could train with each other and potentially find more sense of safety and security in that uh, relationship with each other. Um, so that, yeah, for, so they could take it however far they wanted to, you know, like if they wanted to only be in a women's class for the rest of their life, I have no problem with that. Or if they felt like through the women's class, they were able to build a, a greater sense of safety and, and competence and confidence that they wanted to start to move into a co-ed class and start to roll and spar with men. Um, that would be, you know, wonderful too. I think uh, a kind of empowering experience. And so I started this class to kind of accommodate that and to make it more available for uh, women who might not feel safe enough to, to participate in a class with men. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think in theory, like in a gym like your gym, it should be, you know, totally not scary to to roll or spar with men. But I know that, I mean, even I have, I guess what I would call a respectable level of competence striking. Striking, I think, is particularly scary uh, yep. relative to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, to me, although I know some people who would, would say the opposite. Um I was that, and you know that there's an underlying fear that if I say to someone, "Okay, we're going to go hard," and they go, "Yep, okay, we're going to go hard," and then I start to go hard, their ego is going to get bruised, and they're going to come back. And like I, that I know of, don't have any trauma, but I sometimes, some days, I'm like, I'm just not in a place to be afraid that. Y- there's a male ego that's going to turn and then hurt me. So I think, yeah. I think, you know, starting in a, at a women's only and learning what your body's capable of building your confidence and then slowly integrating is, is a beautiful way for people to start. And, you know, hats off to people who start in mixed gender. Like I, I did because there was no other options, but mm. you know, and for, for many women, there are no other options and, God, it's a, it's a much more wonderful world now from, you know, all the women that have paved the way for women in MMA when, you know, uh, like even in, in some sports, we weren't allowed to compete for, you know, it was like 50 years before Mm. when males were competing in, in some sports like karate before women mm-hmm. were, were allowed to compete. That was like heavily petitioned. It was like the nineties when women were allowed to fight competitively. Uh, mm. So, but anyway, I want to go back to your women's only martial arts class uh, and the women that you've worked with. Can mm. you, you don't definitely don't name any names, but can you tell any stories of like a female student with maybe a trauma history that's progressed through your, I'm going to call it a system because yeah, you're definitely a systems guy. Yeah. Uh, so the, the women's only class uh, had the one iteration uh, mm-hmm. last year. And um, yeah, I would say that 
basically, um, there was people in that class who were in both the co-ed class and the women's only, and there were people who were in the women's only only. Mm-hmm. And some of them, like I remember uh, one woman, the first time, um, you know, we were trying to play with the, the window of like, all right, uh, is it possible for you to experience a man pinning you inside control and you executing an escape? Mm-hmm. And even though she was able to successfully execute the escape, uh, the experience was still so overwhelming that it was dysregulating to a point where it was like, I need to take a step back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that that kind of communication is really helpful in, uh, in establishing kind of like where people's windows of tolerance are and how to find scenarios which are actually helpful for them and not harmful. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've had a few different students over the course of last year who built up a kind of confidence and competence and were able to train with men at some point and really be assertive about what their, their limits and their boundaries were. So, you know, I don't, I don't always think it's a malicious thing, but sometimes men who are just like maybe, maybe 50, a hundred pounds bigger than a woman does something which is like um, a beyond the capacity of that woman to, uh, to feel like safe or respected with uh, physically. And I guess um, I saw a lot of or one student in particular who was voicing like, Hey, that's too rough for me. Could you please reduce your intensity? And of course, everyone in the class is respectful and understanding of the context and, and yeah, I guess maybe seeing somebody tri- like, yeah, go from, from a women's only to transition into a co-ed and being, and being armed with the tools to speak their boundaries, needs, and limitations. I think it's probably one thing I can speak to about the, the value of that class. Um, yeah. And, and since then, uh, it hasn't been running for a while now. Uh, but, uh, We'll, we'll see as COVID continues. I think uh, my entry point back into teaching will we'll probably start with one-on-one because of the nature of the regulations here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then we can build from that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's, um, I want to dig into people, women, men, anyone who maybe has a trauma history, like we've, we've discussed, that doesn't live in Toronto or, you know, they don't have access Mm. to a mindful martial arts gym because, I mean, I found you by Googling this and, like, I Googled hard um, to try try and find this. Like, like you and I have spoken about this. This doesn't exist yet. This will become the norm. And so to everyone out there, like, it's coming. I think that people are seeing a need for it. There is an underswell movement towards this you know, but if your local gym is just a a standard gym, like what advice do you have for people wanting to start? Yeah. So I guess I would say that what exists top down is really important. So if your instructor has zero capacity to understand you know, and I mean, understand not even in an experiential sense, but respect maybe is a better word, respect your needs when it comes to like 
your trauma journey in martial arts, it's going to be really, really hard to impossible to create an environment that you'll, you can settle into and feel safe in and grow in. And so um, having a conversation with the, the head trainer or the coach, like from the beginning, uh, I found that really helpful when I was going from gym to gym and trying to find a place that uh, felt like home for me. Um, just, you know, if you feel comfortable enough, you don't have to say any details or anything specific, but being able to say that, you know, I'm working through something, or if you want to say, you know, you experience some kind of trauma or that you have PTSD or, or however you identify with your, your struggle with trauma. Um, and to feel safe enough to share that with the owner or the instructor and say, you know, I might need a, B, C, D. I might need to go lighter on some days and I'd like to be able to ask for that. Or, um, you know, there's some days in which like I won't be able to do A, B, C, D or, or whatever it is it might be. Or even if you're just a beginner and you, you don't even know yet, just setting the context where you're saying, hey, I'm going through this. I don't know what my capacity will be, but I'd like to take it at my own pace if that's possible. I might not be able to do everything everyone else is doing all the time. And if you see your instructor has a genuine response of empathy and accommodation and consideration, I would say that's something that you could start to dip a toe into and start to explore the classes and, and, and test to see, you know, what the limits are of that gym. And if you notice that you're feeling like you're not being respected or that your needs aren't being met in some way to really speak up because um, as vulnerable as it is, there's really no other way to create those scenarios. And if a gym, if an owner, if a head trainer is really not in that headspace, um, you speaking up will make it apparent, you know, being able to ask for your needs, being able to explain your circumstances. If you're not being met with respect and consideration, it's not the place for you. And yeah, like having the, um, the courage to do that early on may be really helpful in the long run so that you don't accidentally embed yourself in a, I'll use the word toxic, but like um, in a system that is ultimately harmful for you and maybe harmful for other people too. Yeah. And that would be my first. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you have any grounding strategies that people could use to bring themselves back into their window of tolerance? Yeah. So I think there's a million and a half and in some ways uh, there, they could be individual as well. Like, like for example, if you, if you are able to form a friendship or you have a friend that you're starting to train with and they know your trauma narrative in some way, or the things that you struggle with having somebody to lean on, I imagine is extremely helpful. Um, I've had it, you know, in different places when I was in TriStar, I had training partners who just were salt of the earth. And I just felt like they were so compassionate and so skilled and strong that I, I could really lean on them uh, in times when I needed to, when I needed to find somebody who, you know, was discerning and it wasn't going to be harmful to me. Um, so having a buddy that you trust, I think is amazing in that context. Um, if you don't have that, um, yeah, depending upon your level of dysregulation or, or how far outside of your window of tolerance, you know, there's different strategies. 
if it's something that's mild coming back to your breath, I think is a really good strategy because maybe, you know, you're being triggered and some kind of experience is flowing through you and you're getting lost in that experience and coming back into your breath and your body might help you process and move through that. If it's more intense than that, um, you know, removing yourself from whatever scenario is creating the trigger or aggravating the trigger and then finding something that feels safe, whether it's a a person or removing yourself and going to the bathroom or, um, you know, going into the corner and saying, I need a minute and maybe focusing on parts of your body that you don't feel like carry trauma, like in this somatic sense, you know, maybe it's your hands, maybe it's your feet. Um, and yeah, breath, breath is always really important to me. I really feel like breath helps move things through the body um, and can help regulate in time. Um, I wrote a few more down. I just want to see if I can yeah, please. pop them up here. Um, yeah. In some ways, I think too, like just having a mindfulness practice in general will help create the context to be able to know when you are dysregulated. Because sometimes in the beginning of my journey, I didn't even know what dysregulation was or that I was dysregulated. I just knew that, you know, there would be times when I would get hit and I would just go kamikaze and not really know. I thought it was like, oh, it's just part of who I am. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so being being trauma informed and getting a little bit of trauma education can help you understand when you are breaching your window of tolerance. And then you can start to employ some different strategies. Um, I found some really subtle strategies associated with a system called sensory motor psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of like somatic strategies to help uh, bring you back into your window of tolerance. So For example, if you're in the lower end of your window of tolerance and you're feeling hypo, like kind of like no energy, like helplessness, shame, uh, being unable to move, like you have nothing, you know, you have no agency in some way. Sometimes a little wiggle of the fingers and the toes informs your nervous system that, hey, hey, I still have agency. Um, you know, I'm still a human being that can make choices and who can, uh, you know, choose to move my body in some way. And sometimes it really does take starting at that really small level to be able to inform your nervous system that, you know, your nervous system might be saying it's over your, excuse my language, you're freaking dead, you know, like, uh, like, you know, you got to give up because you're dead, you're about to die. That's literally kind of what your nervous system is saying to you. But if you're able to you know, wiggle your toes and wiggle your feet and you can start to restore this sense in your body that, Hey, Oh, I'm still alive. Oh, I can still move. Oh, okay. You know, you can come back to your agency. And I really think that this is a strategy that's been used forever in kickboxing and boxing without people knowing about it. It's like when people get rocked and then they're kind of like not even out on their feet, but they're dazed. And then they start to hop back and forth on their toes. You know, this kind of like, let me get my feet back underneath me. I really think that that is, whether people know it or not, a somatic strategy to regulate, to come back into the window of tolerance. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's perfect. I love it. So we've got 
you know, wiggling fingers and toes to come back on land when we're, we've gone into that kind of play dead response. We've got breathing yeah. uh, and we've got having people around us, whether it's a friend that you bring into the gym or it's someone that you identify within the gym that you join as being someone who, who's always going to look after you. Yeah. Definitely. I, you know, I sensory motor psychotherapy senses a lot around attachment theories you know, yeah. and, and lack of attachments and, and how difficult it is for people who have been through trauma to to have healthy attachments. And so on that too, I would say like more people in the gym want to be your friend than don't. You know, like most mm. people, even if your uh, awareness focuses on all negatives and it seems like everybody is like trying to beat you or it seems like nobody cares, yeah. Try as much as you can to just look for one piece of evidence that somebody does want to be on your side because I promise you there are lots of incredible people in martial arts that definitely want to be on your side and they will be protectors for you and, and helpers and, and friends. That's a great point. Yeah, thank you. So you obviously are aware that I'm starting the Fight Back Project uh, mm. and it launches this week. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Amazing. Obviously very different to what you guys are doing because due to COVID largely and and also I think because it's nice to to have the option to be able to do things in an environment that's safe for you being at home and and therefore the programs run online. Um, But, Mm -hmm. yeah, so with it launching this week and everything, do you have any advice for me given you've got more experience than me in mindful martial arts? Um, yeah, I was thinking on this and I guess, uh, like if I look back at my journey, uh, to where I am now with mindful martial arts and martial arts in general, I think, uh, uh, just, and and this may be personal, so I can't say for sure that this is right for you, but, uh, you know, starting slow and taking things a step at a time. Um, and yeah, like really really being aware of your own limitations and kind of uh, working within them and, and being okay to do that in a systematic way, I think really builds like a solid foundation that you won't have to uh, at any point, like go back and like recycle or do a, a huge upheaval because you're starting from like solid foundations and you're starting from a grounded sense of your capacity. And so you know, continuing to do your personal work on yourself and your understanding of trauma and martial arts while, you know, building, building this amazing thing that you are building and going to going to continue to build um, around helping people uh, overcome their traumas and empower themselves through martial arts. Um, That would be kind of my only, my only nugget uh, for the moment, but I think you're very well informed of trauma and, and your your theoretical knowledge uh, I think extends beyond mine and um, I think that's really cool and I think that would be really helpful for a lot of people um, especially considering that you are a competitive martial artist and a badass <laughs> oh we try we try <laughs> yeah. no, thank, you, you thank you thank you I will definitely sit and think on that and make sure that 
I'm not trying to move too fast because you are definitely, I think, a good judge of character and you can pick that up pretty quickly. I'm like, oh, what can we do next? What else? What else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's my rush. thing for sure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I definitely <laughs> need to keep reminding myself that. Uh, and this podcast is primarily listened to by women. So is there anything that you would like to share with women listening? Hmm. What would I like to share with women listening? I think uh, it's really important to be able to speak up and I really hope that there's more and more environments in which women feel like they're encouraged to set their limits, to ask for their needs um, in the context of martial arts and in general in life. And I really hope that uh, women and men and people of all identified genders can, can learn how to understand each other better and work with each other better in a way that honors who they are as people. And I really feel that communication, um, well, one, setting, setting a context in which people feel safe. And I hope that Mindful Martial Arts is that for people. And, and the Fight Back Project will be too. Um, so having that context where people can feel safe enough to engage with each other and to have the conversations that need to be had so that we can understand each other better and move forward uh, in a way that like honors everyone. Uh, that's, my, that's my wish. So, um, yeah, I really encourage people to speak their mind and to, to hold space for others to have their perspectives as well. And yeah, let's, let's move forward, uh, towards a future that's like more and more, um, honoring the individual and honoring the unity that, uh, underlies all individuals. And where can people find more about, Mindful Martial Arts Online and people located in Toronto. This episode's going to come out on the 15th of July, so who knows what COVID restrictions will be by then, but I think there'll be people who want to follow up and get in contact with you, so plug yourself. Maybe. Where are you? Where are you? Oh, thank you. Uh, so I have a website uh, which uh, details kind of like a little bit about my story and where I came from and, and, and the principles of Mindful Martial Arts. Uh, www.mindfulmartialarts.ca. Um, you can also, if you want, add me on Facebook, uh, Sean Desjardins, Desjardins, I guess in a less French accent, I would say. Uh, <laughs> um, or if you want, I have an Instagram, which is mindful underscore martial underscore arts. Awesome. We'll put all of those in the show notes so people can click on them and be able to spell your last name, which I definitely. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's very French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's Canada. Awesome. All right. So that'll all be there for everyone to follow up and get in contact with you and the amazing work that you and the team are doing at Mindful Martial Arts. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate what you're doing. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Fight Back Podcast. If you got something out of this episode, if you enjoyed it, uh, which pretty much means you listened to it the whole way through, uh, please give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't know how to do that, message me on Instagram. It's at Fight Back Project or on Facebook, find me at The Fight Back Project and I can talk you through it because it really, really means a lot to me and my visibility. And if you're listening to this podcast, then clearly you care about the connections between 
martial arts and mental health. And I know you want to help spread that message too. I'll see you back here on Wednesday next week.